All right, good morning again. Let's get into God's Word. We're in the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 29, if you would like to open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. Exodus chapter 29, verses 1 through 46. The topic, Aaron's ordination as high priest begins with him being given a one-time bath, then continues with a slew of animal sacrifices. The title of our message, It's Not Easy Being Clean, to have a word of prayer. Father, this morning we've been gathered together. Lord, is a divine appointment, really, though we may have decided to come and desire to come, Lord, it was by your prompting and and your design that we're here this morning. And Lord, that's so that you can speak to us in, in the word and by your spirit as he's here to teach us this word. And I pray that nothing I say will get in the way, Lord, but that it would only enhance the understanding of the text as it's written. But mostly, Lord, that spiritually speaking, you would talk to us. You promise, Lord, that you can discern between the soul and the spirit. There's a, a part of us that only you can communicate with. Do that this morning, Lord. Share with us the love of Jesus Christ. Renew our hearts and rededicate our lives. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, draw them into your everlasting arms of love. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Sci-fi writers are obsessed with enhancing humans to produce a super version of man. It's a plot point that figures prominently in the Marvel Cinematic Universe with characters like Captain America and the Red Skull and the Winter Soldier. Star Trek fans regard Khan Noonien Singh as one of the great villains in that universe. He was a genetically enhanced human who gave Kirk and Spock trouble in the original television series and then in two more feature films. Superhumans are not just sci-fi characters anymore. Russian strongman Vladimir Putin not too long ago warned of future superhuman soldiers. He said they would be more destructive than nuclear bombs because they feel no fear or pain. Back in 2015, Popular Mechanics published a story titled Russia and China's Enhanced Human Operations Terrify the Pentagon. One U.S. official was quoted saying, we're going to have to have a big, big discussion on whether we're comfortable going that way, in other words, creating our own super soldiers. Who remembers the $6 million man? All right, Steve Austin, a man barely alive. Then the eerie narrator said, gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man better than he was before, better, stronger, faster. And then they have that weird, you know, and stuff. It was great. Now, we look at humans, and we want to make him or her better, stronger, faster, mostly to be able to kill other weaker, slower humans. What would a better human being really look like? I think we see one in our text this morning. He's the high priest of Israel. He's not better in the usual sci-fi sense, but in a spiritual sense. He's better because he's brought into fellowship with God. He is a picture for us of what God intends to do for every fallen man or woman who believes in him to bring us into fellowship with him. I'm going to organize my comments around two points. Number one, you see a man brought into fellowship with God. And then number two, you see a man bringing others into fellowship with God. Let's take a look at that man first in verses 1 through 37. 
Over 300,000 books are published annually in the United States. We are number two on that list. Any guess as to which country publishes the most books? How are you guys getting this? Every service, people knew China. I would have never guessed China. How many of you would have guessed China? Don't lie. All right, God bless you. It is China. And after that, the top five is finished out by the United Kingdom, Japan, and Russia. On the bottom of the list, at number 127, is the country of Oman. Or Oman, I guess it's pronounced. After this, you'll think, oh, man. (laughs) They publish seven books every year. You're in and you're out. But anyway, uh, not much reading going on in there. Now, with so much to read, the first thing I do when someone asks me to read a book is find out where it's going to take me. I research the author and then the subject, especially if it's not fiction. And if it's not fiction, I want to know the conclusion before I begin reading because the whole book is really bringing me to a conclusion. I want to know what that is. The Bible, written by inspiration, has solid authorship. Each of its books ought to be read and reread all the time. But it can still be a good idea to understand where a passage is taking you to see the conclusion from the beginning. It keeps you from reaching your own erroneous conclusions or missing the point. So let's look at the last three verses of chapter 29 and figure out what this chapter is really about. In verse 44, we read, So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Whatever commentators make of this chapter, God intended us to understand that it was about him being able to dwell among men. He was using Aaron and his sons as a picture to show us his desire for all of Israel and therefore all of mankind to dwell among him. We phrase that a little differently. Looking at it from our perspective, we sometimes say that our purpose as humans is for us to have fellowship with God. We were created for that fellowship. That fellowship was lost, uh, and God wants to bring it back. So when we look at Aaron, who was being installed as high priest, we're looking at God bringing fallen humans back into fellowship with him. He represents us all. So let's start the text in verse 1. And this is what you shall do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. This word hallow, or your Bible may read consecrate, means to make holy, to dedicate, or to set apart for a special purpose. The special purpose is to be brought into fellowship with God. Since we are by nature unholy and out of fellowship, God had to act to bring us back. He began to bring us back immediately after our parents sinned in Eden. And the Bible from Genesis through the Revelation reveals the success of God's efforts. In the Revelation, we read, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. And so in Eden, Adam and Eve lost intimate face-to-face fellowship with God. By the time of the Revelation, that is restored Everything in between is the story of how that takes place, how the promised Messiah in Genesis 3 comes and deals with the problem of sin so that mankind can be restored. And so verse 1 again, this is what you shall do to them who hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil. 
and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Now, these verses describe the one-time ordination of Aaron as high priest and of his sons as the regular priests. There was a lot of ceremony and sacrifice before they could even begin to serve in the tabernacle. Everything has symbolism or is a picture to us of some spiritual truth. We'll see three major things God did for them in the first nine verses in order to bring them into fellowship with him. Everything is meaningful. Everything is worth studying and uh, uh, reflecting upon, but there are three major things that God does. One commentator who likes alliteration pointed out that Aaron was absolved, and then he was arrayed, and then he was anointed. Now, for our purposes today, to be absolved means your sin is forgiven along with its guilt and penalty. You see, Aaron was washed with water. His washing and his sons with, uh, with him is what God wants to do for every human. Now, he doesn't want to give us a bath. It's a picture. Jesus interpreted this washing for us on the night before he was crucified. At one point, during his final evening with the disciples before he died, he stooped to wash their feet. As he was doing so, he got into an exchange with Peter, and Jesus said to him, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. He was using physical bathing and subsequent washing to make a spiritual point. One commentator explained it like this. He said, Jesus is saying, when you first come to me, you are bathed, you are clean all over. This is what the Bible calls justification by faith. It is a washing away of all the guilt and sin of the entire life, past, present, and future. But as you walk through life, Jesus knows your feet will become defiled during your walk, and that needs to be washed away. Thus, he teaches us that not only do we need that initial, never-to-be-repeated cleansing, but we also need the many times repeated experience of forgiveness, of coming to Christ for the cleansing away of the defilement of our walk. Now, you notice when we were going through the verses in Exodus, Aaron did not bathe himself. He was bathed by others. We cannot cleanse ourselves from sin. As sinners, we can only be declared righteous and we are the moment we believe in Jesus Christ. You can't make yourself holy. You can't cleanse yourself. You can't quit doing something and then be right with God. God has to look at you as a sinner while you're yet sinning and declare you righteous, and he can do that on the basis of you believing in Jesus Christ. And that's why we say that God justifies believing sinners on the basis of their faith in what Jesus has done for them, that we're justified In a sense, it means just as if you'd never sinned. So God is able to see you just as if you never sinned because you become in Christ when you receive him as your savior and you are, in that sense, bathed, you are cleansed all over. Then in verse five, you shall take garments and put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and its breastplate and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Now, we described in some detail these beautiful and unique garments of the high priest and of the regular priest. That was our last study. What we're seeing here is a once-washed man or a saved man who is being clothed by God, or we would say arrayed with a robe. 
Now, I don't want to belabor that point either because we talked about it last week, but your salvation is pictured in the Bible as God giving you a fine white linen robe, and it's sometimes referred to as a wedding garment. It can't be earned or purchased. It's a gift for those who believe in Jesus. With it, you can enter heaven. Without it, you stand before God in what the Bible describes as your own filthy rags, and ultimately, you're cast into the lake of fire to suffer eternal conscious torment. And so... Uh, Aaron is bathed, he's saved, in a, a, he pictures our salvation, and then he's clothed with this beautiful garment, which we find out later represents the robe of righteousness. And, and the Bible pictures Jesus on the cross, it says he takes our sin upon himself, and at the same time, he gives us his righteousness, and that's how God can declare us righteous, because he sees us believing in Jesus. And that is depicted as us being filthy in our dress, but having this new garment given to us, this wedding garment by which we can enter into eternity, which itself prefigures the fact that one day believers will have a glorified, raised physical body that is incapable of sin and capable of spending time with God for all eternity. Now, the person God brings into fellowship is absolved and arrayed. They are cleansed and clothed. And then they are anointed, verse 7. You shall take the anointing oil, pour it over his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. And you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priest shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. Now, part of this ordination ceremony was the pouring of oil over their heads. Now, this wasn't a tiny transfer of oil from a wet finger to a forehead. You maybe have had uh, us here at the church or in another church uh, called for the elders of the church because you were ill or someone that you love was ill. And typically they'll come and they'll have a little vial of anointing oil and they'll dab their finger with it and then touch the forehead of the, the uh, uh, ill person and then they'll pray. Uh, it, it represents uh, the, the desire to have the prayer of faith that James talks about in his epistle. Call for the elders of the church and the prayer of faith will raise up the sick and, and stuff. So it's a ritual that is practiced by many uh, evangelical and Pentecostal churches. But we don't really do it right. Uh, here's what David said, the psalmist, when he talked about anointing. This is from uh, Psalm 133, verse 2. He says, it's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. And so David says, hey, when Aaron was anointed priest, they poured at least a cup of oil on that guy's head. And it ran down over his head, through his beard, and onto his garments. And so I've always wanted to try that. <laughs> I'm thinking the next one of you that calls us, just keep that in mind. If I show up with, if I ask for a cup, measuring cup, uh, or if I come in with a, something that's more like a thermos than a little vial, then uh, maybe you should be... Maybe you'll feel a lot better before we even get to praying for you. How's that? Anyway, this was a whole thing that they did. Now, Jesus interpreted this for us when he quoted from Isaiah 61. He applied it to himself. He said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And then he went on to talk about preaching good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, and opening the prison to those who are bound. But Jesus said, this anointing represents the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, coming upon a person's life to empower them to serve God. And so after being cleansed and clothed, Aaron would be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
We'll return to this in a moment. First, let's briefly discuss the following verses and see the ordination ceremony unfold. Verse 10, you shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. You shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull with its skin and its offal you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Now the history of God allowing a substitute as a sacrifice began in the Garden of Eden with the slaying of animals to provide covering for Adam and Eve after they sinned. Every subsequent animal sacrificed was like a placeholder pointing to the coming of the promised Savior to once for all be our substitute and sacrifice. I tell you this all the time, but it's important. In the garden, sin, and then God immediately promised the person that he called the seed of the woman who would come and deal with Satan and sin and death. Uh, And then he said, now, that person's not gonna come for a while, In the meantime, you need to be covered, spiritually speaking, and we'll represent that physically by uh, killing some animals and providing skins for you. And so right there in the garden, first animal sacrifice, and then every one after that throughout the history of, of humankind in terms of Bible sacrifice prefigured the coming of Jesus Christ as the final sacrifice. Uh, and so that's what's going on with these bulls and lambs. Laying their hands on the animal's head symbolized the transfer of their sin onto the sacrifice. The animal, as a substitute, would take the punishment for their sin, and Aaron and his sons would be temporarily, ceremonially cleared to worship and serve the Lord in the tabernacle. Verse 15, you shall also take one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram, and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around on the altar. Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, uh, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and with its head, and you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This time, the whole animal was burned on the altar. It pictured the total dedication required on the part of the priests, and God noted that their total dedication would be pleasing to him like a sweet aroma arising to him. Verse 19, you shall also take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the ram, Then you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So there's really nothing hard to see in this picture. The symbolism is pretty obvious. The priests needed ears that were consecrated to hear God. They needed hands that were consecrated to serve God. And they needed feet consecrated to walk with God. And so again, the idea was being brought into fellowship with God so that he could tell them what to do and that they could perform their tasks. Now, if you remember how beautiful the garments were, it's kind of shocking that they would be sprinkled with blood mixed with oil. As we continue, we'll see there was blood everywhere, not just at this ordination, but every day, day in and day out, lots and lots of blood. As a point of interest, 
You might wonder how they dealt with all the blood from the sacrifices. Now, we know in the future temple, the permanent temple in Jerusalem, there was a drainage system that channeled blood out into the Kidron Valley. We're not sure if they dug temporary canals each time the tabernacle was set up, uh, but that would be my guess. I couldn't find anything about the laundering of the garments of the high priest, except that if they became stained beyond cleaning, they had to be hidden away and replaced. They were never destroyed, but they were hidden uh, where no one could find them, and then they were replaced. Verse 22, also you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, two kidneys, the fat on them, the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration, one loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, and one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. You shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. Then you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And from the ram of the consecration, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering, which is waved, and the thigh of the heave offering, which is raised, of that which is for Aaron and of that which is for his sons. It shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a statute forever. For it is a heave offering. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings. That is their heave offering to the Lord. And so there's obviously a lot going on here that we're not covering. As I said, everything has symbolism. Some of it is obvious. Some of it isn't. Some of it is just good devotional fodder for you to think about. Uh, what I think we're seeing here overall is just uh, the enormous preparation that was required just so that Aaron and his sons could serve as priests. Uh, I think sometimes we as human beings don't understand the magnitude and the gravity of sin and what it really took and what it really cost in order for God to deal with the sin of the world. You know, people are always saying, why doesn't God do something? And I'm always pointing out that God immediately in the Garden of Eden did something. He came, he found those sinners, our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he said, I'm going to draw you back into fellowship with me. I don't have to do it. I'm under no obligation to do it. You're the ones that messed up, but I'm going to do it. I'm gonna send the seed of the woman who we learn later on is Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, the God-man. And what we see in the Bible is that it took, and it's taken, about 7,000 of our years to get just to this point. And yet every step along the way, carefully calculated, carefully planned, absolutely necessary, it's taken this long. God, who can do anything, who can do the impossible, says this is what it takes to restore mankind after you have sinned. It's an enormous undertaking involving all of human history, millions and millions and millions of animals sacrificed to get to the point that Jesus Christ comes as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, and, and so nothing, nothing by chance. Not, you know, it isn't like the projects that are in your garage. It's not like the car you've been working on for 15 years uh, whenever you get a chance that's under a tarp, that's under boxes, that's under you know, other stuff. I love to, I have, one of my hobbies I, I, is to look in people's garages when I'm driving by. 
And not just messy garages, but garages that have hidden secrets in them, you know, and, and just cars that never move and they just get more and more. They're like black widow homes, you know, and stuff because, but God's not like that. Every moment of every day of human history has been spent God bringing man back into fellowship with him, nothing wasted. There'd been no central place of worship for the Israelites, not ever, now there would be. God would dwell among them in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. These and the many other offerings would become regular daily occurrences. Verse 29, and the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. That son who becomes priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place. So you didn't keep your garments after you were through. You passed them down to the next high priest. He was unique in that sense, and many other, but the high priest is also pictured as a person that represents every Israelite. Back in Exodus 19, God stated his desire that Israel be a kingdom of priests. And so we look at Aaron and his sons as the high priest and the priests, but God said, really, I intend for all of you to be a kingdom of priests. And that tells me, one thing it tells me is that when I look at Aaron, I'm looking at God's desire for every Israelite and in one sense for every human being. Jesus was unique, but he also pictured what God intends for every believer. He promises to make us like Jesus. We're predestined to be conformed into his image, the Bible says. Now, since that word predestined can be confusing, let me say this. A person is not predestined, or we could use the word predetermined. They are not predetermined to either be saved or to perish. Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, especially those who believe. The Holy Spirit, by God's grace, frees a person's will to believe. Those that do believe and are saved are then destined to become like Jesus. The good work of salvation God begins in you, he will bring to completion. So we're not predestined to salvation. We're predestined to become like Jesus after we're saved. And then verse 31, you shall take the ram of the consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place. Then Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and sanctify them. But an outsider shall not eat them because they're holy. If any of the flesh of the consecration offerings or the bread remains till morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten. It is holy. This meal could only be eaten by a select few, by Aaron and his sons. Even so, it pictured what God wanted for every Israelite to share fellowship with them, the same way that Jesus only ate with a select few of disciples, but it pictures what he promised all future disciples, that if we open the door to his knocking, he will come in and do what? He will have supper with us. And so we're seeing what God intends for every human being. Verse 35 Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them. You shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. So as I said, it's not easy being clean. This meticulous set of initial rituals emphasize that mankind was separated from God by sin, but it also preached that God was working tirelessly to redeem mankind from sin and to restore men and women to fellowship with him, both on earth and in eternity. 
So let's take another spiritual look at the ground we've just covered. The blood of substituted sacrifices was the necessary prerequisite for being restored to fellowship with God. All animal sacrifices from the original one in the garden were a temporary fix until Jesus died on Passover as the final lamb and said, it is finished. Jesus' sacrifice enables God the Father to justify believing sinners, in effect, cleansing them once for all from the penalty of past, present, and future sins. As Jesus took upon himself mankind's filthy garments of sin, he offers us the fine white linen robe that we must have as our wedding garment in order to enter heaven. And God, the Holy Spirit, is given to us to indwell us and to empower us. That saved man, he is the better man. The man or woman who is saved once for all, who is being sanctified day by day, whose body is the temple of God on earth, who will one day inherit eternity in a glorified body incapable of sin, that is the better man or woman. It's hard to say how much of this an Israelite would have seen in the picture language of the tabernacle. Even if most of it was a mystery, God had told them outright that it was all so he could dwell among them. And that is something precious in itself to a people who had just come out of slavery and were not a nation who are becoming a nation. God said, hey, the main thing that this is all about, guys, is that I can dwell among you. We see it more clearly having the benefit of God's complete revelation through both the written and the living word of God. Now, the remaining verses in them, we see a man bringing others into fellowship with God. A lot of work goes on Sunday mornings in order for us to bring you uh, the services. Obviously, there's a procedure that needs to be followed to power up the sound systems all over campus and to enable the slides and to broadcast on the interweb. Meanwhile, we have guys on a rotation who show up to open the facility. Cafe crew needs to prep everything. Usher and security teams need to be in place. Sunday school teachers, it goes on and on down the line. All of it results in us being open for God's business. The Old Testament tabernacle had morning and evening procedures. Until they were done, no worshiper could bring his or her sacrifice, and therefore no ministry could take place. So in verse 38, now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of pressed oil, and one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer with it the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning for a sweet aroma and offering made by fire to the Lord. So after this week of ordination ceremonies was finished, Aaron and sons could get down to the daily God business. Every day, twice a day, they would offer this burnt offering in the morning and in the afternoon at twilight. Verse 42, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord where I will meet you to speak with you and there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. The faithfulness of the priests in this matter translated to the Israelites being able to come to the tabernacle and worship. In other words, until the morning and evening sacrifice, day in and day out, there was no other sacrifices that could take place. And so thus, I say that the priests in their ministry were bringing others to God. They were making it possible for other Israelites to approach God. Likewise, as we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, we are promoting fellowship with God, either through the evangelism of non-believers or through the edification of one another as believers. 
Verse 44, so I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God took the initiative from the beginning. The tabernacle was his idea. The priesthood was his idea. These weren't suggestions Moses had. And got into an audience. Hey, God, can I meet with you? I have some ideas for a temple. This was all God. Everything he demanded for the consecration of both the tabernacle and the priesthood communicated that although he is perfect in holiness, he can nevertheless restore sinners to fellowship with himself. He would dwell among them. It was his great desire and their great joy. The better man isn't faster, stronger, a super soldier. He's simply a believer in Jesus Christ. He is someone who is in Christ. I'll close with a quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, if a man had his way, the plan of redemption would be an endless and bloody conflict. In reality, salvation was bought not by Jesus' fist, but by his nail-pierced hands, not by muscle, but by love, not by vengeance, but by forgiveness, not by force, but by sacrifice. Jesus Christ, our Lord, surrendered in order that he might win. He destroyed his enemies by dying for them and conquered death by allowing death to conquer him. Let's pray.